Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. Another episode of Simply Amazing. I'm Tim Ryder from the Apple. Back with us after uh, a long, hard weekend of studying is Taryn Sharma. What's happening, man? Yeah, and uh, it just uh, it never stops. There's so much to learn, and I'm still looking. Like I've got this stack of books from the Bar Review Company, and there's just always more of it. So we're uh, gonna keep learning. So what you're you're pretty much going over everything you learned in law school, and then trying to pack more new shit in. Uh, yeah, mostly like uh, trying to relearn all of the stuff that I forgot uh, over the last three years. So um, they're like seven or so uh courses that are like the core of the the multi-state bar exam and then uh yeah just trying to figure out how to attack it so that i can do well wild well you know of course studies come first so uh whenever you got to take those breaks we're more than more than capable to keep the uh to keep the train moving but speaking of keeping the train moving these metropolitans they finally found a an actual groove well yeah i i mean i guess if there were any complaints that you could have had about this team uh the first couple months of the season it's like why did they not sweep anyone uh are they not good they haven't swept anyone and so they uh they obviously responded by sweeping Two series in a row, perfect six and zero homestand, first perfect homestand since 2015. They had a ten and zero homestand that year, so uh, yeah, it was very exciting. A lot of drama, and uh, especially in the Philly series, and uh, it's awesome to see the other guys step up. Everybody steps up, and I know. I mean, this is we're just kind of playing the same record over and over again. But you know, as someone falls off and somebody else steps in even on a, like a, on a inning to inning basis like oh well you know oh well well player a didn't come through well player b you're up it's your turn to be the hero and and, and they are it's amazing yeah and uh a, a guy who has taken a little bit of heat for um some issues defensively for not necessarily hitting like they're expected to eduardo escobar he comes up big in that that philly series and he basically uh wins them the game so uh, yeah, the, the Mets, they keep winning. Not much to say about the Washington series. Like they just avalanche the Nats. Those are, <laughs> th- those teams are in a different class, but, um, it's so important to win those games, right? Like good teams, great teams in baseball. It's not just that they beat other good teams. Like we're going to get an opportunity to see the Mets play, uh, the Dodgers who are probably the class of the NL right now. Uh, but beating up on bad teams is, is a good sign. That is, that is a sign of a good ball club and that's how you collect those wins. And that's how you end up with a 10 game lead uh, at, at this point in the season. Oh, exactly. I mean, and, and that's, that's a hallmark of a successful and a, and a contending ball club is, is do is taking care of business against teams that you should beat. But, and the Mets, of course, they did that. And it was funny on, on, on Thursday, on, on Wednesday, um, you know, it, cookie, he really got got through nicely. His command wasn't there, but but pitched terrifically. Another nice start. But you know the the Nationals had this unheralded pitcher making his major league debut, and we, we've all seen this movie before. And the Mets, you know, they got they were a little stifled, but you know, like a switch, they turned it on and, and cruised to another sweep. But um, kind of off of what you were saying about beating up on bad teams, this. You know, there's always more of a, I guess, a deeper aspect to it. And I think the Mets really took advantage of preparing themselves to beat good teams. Look at what they did to Juan Soto in this series. Held him to one for ten, attacked him exactly how they had to attack him to keep him at bay. And, and, you know, of course, you're not going to see Juan Soto's in L.A. or San Diego or, or, or Anaheim, but you're going to see the, you know, the cream of the of the baseball crop, whether, you know, you're looking at, 
well, the Dodgers, pretty much their whole lineup, whether you're looking at Machado in San Diego or uh, Trout or Otani or wh- whoever's the hot bat over in Anaheim on uh, next weekend, you know, you got to prepare yourselves for being able to take out that big bat. And, you know, granted, there's not a lot of protection around him in the uh, Nats lineup. And Soto really didn't look all that enthused to be out there this week, which is a surprise. He's usually a, um, you know, just so eager to go out there and hit no matter what the team is doing. You saw it last year. But, yeah, yeah. Uh, the fire kind of wasn't there. But the Mets, you know, they, they kept him at bay. And that's what you got to do, especially coming in, in Los Angeles. You know, you don't want to let Frank Freeman beat you. You don't want to let Justin Turner beat you. Knowing how to attack the other, uh, the other big weapon on the other side is, um, you know, that's a that's a a nice notch on the belt, especially heading into a very very big stretch. Yeah, and and Soto has struggled a little bit this year, uh, more than we've seen him struggle so far at this point in his career. I mean, keep in mind the fact that he's only like twenty three years old um and is like a world beater already but yeah so um it it was great to see the Mets kind of uh hold him in check like you said and uh how about that moment that uh Cookie Carrasco's father Luis getting to see him pitch for the first time in in Cookie's major league career he's uh been around more than a decade now and um so that that was really special and uh Gelbs and SNY they do such a good job of telling the the human side of the game. Uh, and I just, I wanted to shout that out because I really enjoyed that moment. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, you love to see, you could see the joy, you could see him. He, he was, you know, not only just taking in the game, he was wrapped up in the game. He was really into it. And Cookie's getting these big outs after getting into a little bit of trouble. And, you know, Mr. Carrasco's just, uh, you know, it, it, absolutely living the moment. You know, it, to its to its fullest, and you just you love to see it. It's so cool. Absolutely, yeah. That was uh, that was great. So um, we're yeah moving on to this West Coast trip that we've been talking about seemingly for like the last few weeks, at least in, uh, since Scherzer got hurt, because this is kind of like what I had circled on the calendar. We had discussed making the most of the uh, games that were preceding it, and the Mets did that great six six game run. Uh, and now they, they head to the West Coast, no off day. They're going to play uh, tonight. We're recording this on, uh, on Thursday afternoon. They're going to play tonight. And L.A., shockingly, just like uh, a, a mystifying three-game sweep at home uh, at the hands of the, uh, the Pittsburgh Pirates. What did you make of that? That's awesome. And they had, a, they had some just outstanding baseball plays. If you look at, I think, the Pirates team account on Twitter, put up a, uh, a little video montage and I guess it starts with LA's, I don't know if it's the radio booth or TV booth saying, Oh, bad teams will find a way to lose games. <laughs> and, uh, and they go on to like do this little montage of, of just Pittsburgh making play after play and throw after throwing and, and, and rope after rope. And just, yeah, um, we'll take it. And I think the Mets, you know, should go in there and, and try to catch them while they're on their heels. I think that's a, um, so it's almost like a, a little twist of fate. Yeah, I, I thought the uh, the post game interview on uh, Monday with Bednar, who uh, <laughs> he said it's gonna, fucking crazy, right? <laughs> Something yeah, like that. Yeah, it was awesome, and, and then he immediately apologizes because he realizes, like, oh yeah, you're on TV. But uh, but no, that, that was uh, he, he gave uh, the reporter like a uh, uh, he gave that guy a butt tap afterwards too, and like he was so I. <laughs> It was fun to see that because, like, it's tough to to be on a losing team, obviously, uh, and and to see the guys care that much and and bring it and and really got out a win because they blew a four run lead in that game uh, and, and coming back to win that and then and then winning the next two games. So, uh, yeah, that's uh, that's crazy. But um, what did you say last week? The the John Sterling that's baseball, Susan. That is baseball, Susan. These things happen. And, and you know, in the same way that the Dodgers have kind of um, backed in to a very big series, the Mets, you know, as we just said, six in a row, they're, uh, they're cruising into it. I, I, sh- I wanted to note that Starling Marte turning – I mean, he, he's been on for pretty much the entire month of May. He was really struggling in April, 224, 293, 18. In May, he hit 340, 359, 570. Just in the six-game streak itself, 
Marte was 10 for 26 with eight runs scored and seven RBI. Right. Yeah. And that was a guy that, um, that I had pointed out as uh, maybe a candidate to really explode, but that was because he had just hit Eflin very well, but he, he's yeah. Like you said, been fantastic. And especially after he came back from uh, bereavement, he's really been in another level. And uh, <laughs> I mean, it's been great. It's been great for the Mets. It has. I, I don't know. Like, I don't, I don't want to say that it's a, it's a coincidence or not that the Mets have finally, you know, put together their first real winning streak. Uh, just when Marte finally does, you know, really find his, his, his stroke. But um, I'm very confident in saying that Marte is an X factor to this team's success. Just the dynamic that he adds, whether it be in the outfield or now at the plate, you're kind of starting to see everything he brings to the table. I mean, we saw it as an opposing team. Um, uh, you know, from a fan's perspective, but you know, you see it from afar. But now you you're seeing what he does, whether it's scampering around the base paths, whether yeah. now he's adding power to it. Um, you know, it's 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 exciting, and you can't say that, you know, oh, Marte carried the way because so many other guys. I mean, as a team, I have numbers here. Hold on, we have stats today. Oh, yeah. uh, as a team, during the six game streak, the Mets have hit the Mets hit three twenty five, three ninety seven, four ninety five. Uh, 67 hits were tied for second in baseball over that span. 49 runs were first. You'll never guess who is second in the league in runs over that span. Is it the Dodgers? It is not. It's the Baltimore Orioles. No way. Yeah. 65 hits over that span, too. They're just behind the Mets in both. Ca- it's six games. So it's, you know, it's not much to. But I had to make note of it. I wrote it down because it's very impressive. Uh, you know, Luis Guillorme, we, we could talk about him every week if we wanted to, because he's that good right now. Nine for 18, one strikeout, eight runs scored in the six game streak. And playing great defense. Uh, yeah, magician defense. He's yeah. got rabbits in hats all, all day and all night. Unbelievable. He's a fantastic player and, and somebody who really grinded it out, right. To get this opportunity, it definitely wasn't handed to him. And, uh, and he's just had to keep battling uh, and so it's really nice to see him making the most of it. Oh, absolutely. And, and, you know, you could see, again, if we've been, anyone has been watching the Mets last few years, you know, Luis Guillorme had a really, really tough time finding consistent playing time. Didn't matter what the manager said in spring training. He, you know, he was, he found himself on the bench. Didn't matter if he was hitting or not. Yeah. Um, Buck Walter didn't flinch. He said, no, no, he's going to be a valuable piece for us. And he's, he has been, it's been um, just a sight to behold. Yeah, and, and I think it's been especially valuable this past week or so because uh, we saw that McNeil was held out uh, what they call like normal wear and tear, just not necessarily wanting to play him in the field. Well, Giorme is a plus defender. He, he might even be like plus plus guy. So, um, yeah, he, he's been superb. And then one other thing that I wanted to point out is something that Buck said about Giorme. He's like, too often we uh, get this idea of what a player will be and then we, we won't adjust that. And that's, that's a shame. And he was talking about Guillaume. So um, it, it's nice to see the baseball people recognizing and, and, uh, and rewarding based on merit with, uh, with an opportunity to play. So um, I, I, I love Luis Guillaume. He's uh, he's a grinder and uh, it's just, this is, Man, it's such a good time. Uh, <laughs> I, I keep thinking that I got to pinch myself because this is, I mean, when's the last time we saw a lineup this deep for the Mets and, and, and playing good baseball, aesthetically pleasing baseball, never out of a game. Uh, those things you really shouldn't be taken for granted because I don't think that we've had an opportunity to see much of it in orange and blue throughout our lives watching and I think it's more than, I mean, it's, I mean, of course it's the, it's the fundamentally sound baseball and, and the winds, of course, the winds help everything, but you're seeing, um, got, at other points in other seasons, you saw Mets teams get flustered, big injury team gets flustered. Yeah. Uh, someone's not playing well. Someone gets, we haven't really talked about Don Smith getting demoted. I don't know if yeah. it didn't happen when me and Jerry were here Sunday, I don't think, but, uh, mm. Um, you know, stuff like this could really, all these sorts of things can derail, uh, you know, a good thing that's happening. And 
whether it be first inning runs and the Mets have been good about scoring on their own, but they've fallen behind plenty of times this season. Just, I think it's, it's one big example of just this team get going to work. They said, all right, it's, you know, oh, we're down time to come back. Oh, we have some adversity on our plates. Um, whether it's injuries, whether whatever it is, you know, we know where our focus lies. It's, it's, it's impressive. It's, it's, it's so out of character for for this organization as as fans. I mean, out, me and you were just blown away. Absolutely, and uh, yeah, we hope that it'll keep going. Um, they asked Buck, like you know, can this keep happening? You're not necessarily hitting a ton of home runs. It's uh, you know, at bat to at bat, and just making it happen. And he was like, yeah, I mean, you hope so. And and too often we're focused on what's going to happen, and I'm content with just seeing what happens. So uh, I think they have a good perspective. They have great leadership. Uh, They're having fun. Really, I don't want anyone who's listening to this to just take that for granted. I I think this is like we're entering a golden era. Oh, I mean, you know, when when Cohen came in and said, we're going to be the Dodgers, Dodgers of the East, um, you know, I I think a lot of people – you know, snickered at that. That's it's a tall task. Look at what the Dodgers have done just in the last decade. Um, you know, they, they have money to spend and they still keep on bringing up decent players, whether they keep them or trade them for better players. You know, this is what an upper echelon team does. And it only took him, what, 18 months, two years? And, and he's already fulfilling promises. He's already turned things around. Like, you know, I think everyone was kind of expecting another shoe to drop as far as, oh, you know, it's the Mets. There'll be setbacks. But even when there's setbacks, they just keep on pushing forward. It's really, it's um, it's uncanny what they're doing. Yeah. And, and rolling, uh, despite missing two Hall of Fame caliber pitchers, it's... Uh, yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, like, that's not normal stuff. <laughs> it's not. Especially not for the Mets. Not for, I mean, and, and I get it. Like, I think I was talking with someone on Twitter early on Thursday, maybe Wednesday. And it's like, yeah, like I'm not sure what to make of all this. And I I agree. It's a strange feeling. Like, you know, 2006 was one thing. And it was, of course, it was, it was a similar out of the blue type of phenomenon. There were big expectations, high expectations. And, and and the Mets really rolled with it. And, you know, feeling and as a fan, knowing that your team is just at the top of the list when it comes to, major league ball clubs, which they were in 2006. Um, it, it's, it's kind of unrivaled because, you know, you can get into a world series or you can get into a postseason series and all that energy is condensed into a, you know, a seven or whatever, a, a series. Knowing that you're the king of the hill for 162 games, just as a fan base, that's, um, you know, so far, so, so good. And, and really just jaw dropping, jaw droppingly fun. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, a few more notes on players this week. Uh, JD, since um, Dom was sent down, is four for eleven. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we've seen his his that 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 line drive swing really coming into play and uh, blossoming. Hopefully, as he gets consistent reps, that'll come. And hopefully, the same could be said for Dom. Um, yeah. <laughs> Nick Plummer. Uh, is four for eight in his major league career with a 1.375 slugging percentage. Taryn, is it sustainable? <laughs> <laughs> uh, how small is that sample size? Um, yeah. that's, that's eight at bats. <laughs> I mean, we, uh, we can start as Cooperstown bust. I just, you know, who knows? By then they might be using actual like solid gold, <laughs> at least for Nick Glover. If you're talking about pedigree, like he's got to use a first round pick. So, oh, uh, that- Mets snapped him up and, and that was such a cool moment uh, against Philadelphia. Uh, you have Ottavino struggle. He, he uh, kind of blows it, get, gives up the home run to uh, Castellanos and, um, and, and then coming back and, and being able to tie the game like that. That was, that was awesome. So great moment. And, and he can play all the positions. So that's uh, that's very valuable for an outfielder. He's kind of just slid into that Jankowski role. Yeah. Oh, which is a shame. Oh, he was such a spark plug. But again, like we just noted, you know, adversity comes. This team just keeps rolling through it. And, you know, maybe that'll stack up at one point. But I think this team's deep enough and talented enough that let it stack up. 
what's it going to be? What, what, they might have a tough week. That's what you build up a 10 game lead at the beginning of June for, I guess. Exactly. Just so much fun. What do you got going on this weekend? You hitting any twins games? Uh, yeah, well, the Yankees are in town next week. Uh, I got, uh, um, just more, more stuff to do trying to get, uh, ahead. Um, but, uh, um, yeah, you want to talk Dodgers real quick? Absolutely. Um, I'm, so, intrigued, I'm intrigued by Tony Gonsolin. What do we got? Yeah. So, you know, I was, I was looking at these guys, Tony Gonsolin has like a one eight ERA. I was like, how's that happening? Um, Turns out that he's throwing his curveball like a lot more this year. So they have him throwing his curveball about 15% of the time. Um, and, which, and a heavy sinker guy too, right? And, uh, and then, so his, uh, is he's throwing his fastball less and then he's, uh, throwing these breaking balls, uh, slider about the same, but, but the curveball is like the big difference from last year. Oh, wow. And, uh, and then he's throwing his splitter, uh, quite a bit more. So, um, those uh, those pitches, like his fastball, is pretty hittable. If you can get him into a fastball count, I think it, it's fine. But his, uh, um, based on the stats, like his uh, his his slider and curveball, pretty solid. Um, but I was looking, and and so I was looking at their xFIP, uh, which is the, you know the expected uh, uh, fielding independent pitching stat. So mm-hmm. basically, like the quality of the pitcher, um, more boiled down. And and he and Tyler Anderson, who are both having phenomenal years based on ERA. They're both at about three and a half runs uh, based on their XFIP. And then uh, I was surprised to see Walker Bueller is at like three, six, nine. So those are the three guys that we know that we're going to see this week. Um, So generally like when a uh, ERA is much lower than a, than a XFIP, like you can point to some things like, uh, like a little bit of luck. So um, hopefully that's the case and hopefully the, uh, the Mets can, um, can score some runs, but it's, it's not easy. They played yesterday and then they had to fly across country and then they play again tonight. So, um, hopefully they'll be able to put up a few for Taiwan Walker. Yeah. And Walker, who's, who's really been terrific. I know we talked about it on the show on Sunday a little bit, you know, didn't have his best stuff. Just checking out Statcast. His spin rates were, were a little bit down in his last outing. Um, you got to wonder whether that was a product of the humidity or just the wet weather or whatever the case is. Just an off night. But I'm certainly looking forward to seeing how he bounces back. And you know, bounce back is like air quotes because he had a decent start. He was he he got around trouble fine. Just um, it, well, he wasn't as dominant as we've seen him. And I think it went back to the splitter. And again, this is uh, me repeating myself from 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 last week's show, but uh, you know he looks like he did during the first half of last season. He does. He's not relying on strikeouts. He's pitching to contact, and you know that that's what's going to play. And and you know if the Mets can keep on pumping out a good pitcher every night, whether it be or front of the rotation when they're healthy, or whether it's Tywin Walker in the five spot, whatever it is. You know, it just gives this team a better chance of winning, and it's, it's great. Yeah, he's not striking out a ton of guys this year, but uh, the ground ball rate is good. So, uh, yeah, hopefully he can and continue to, to get himself settled. Huh. I'm looking at Walker Bueller's stat cast page. Mm-hmm. His, his uh, Bueller, his forcing usage is dropped from 44% in 2021 to 32% this season. And his cutter's gone from 163 to 25.7%. Also, also leaning on the curveball more. So I don't know who told him to change, but um, he, he's definitely changing up his repertoire a bit, or at least his usage. And uh, maybe that's a, <laughs> maybe that's a, um, uh, just a, a ploy. Maybe some guys were, were getting used to him and now from 10 starts in, he's going to snap back into his old, uh, his old, uh, his old rhythms. Yeah, it's, uh, yeah, <laughs> maybe. <laughs> I'm, I got my tinfoil hat on. Who knows? <laughs> but yeah, I'm I'm excited to see this series. You get four games against. Uh, I mean, especially based on run differential, and then historically over the last decade, like you were saying, uh, the the real class of the NL. Um, so I'm excited to see how the Mets do. Obviously, this isn't like the full the final form of what the Mets could be. 
especially without their their stud pitchers. But um, they, they've been grinding out games, so I, I'm excited to see how they'll do. Uh, I'm not necessarily excited to be staying up late this week, though. <laughs> I was just saying before we hit record, once I finish, uh, I, once we finish up here, I'm going to be Tim, try and take a nap and, uh, and watch the game tonight. But uh, through the weekend, I, I'll have to make that work. And then I think we're, we're going to wing it and prayer it <laughs> through the uh, Padres series next week. But, um, you know, just looking at the Dodgers lineup, man, Mookie Betts, Freddie Freeman, Trey Turner, Edwin Rios is having a terrific year so far. Chris Taylor is like, a, you know, the California version of uh, – of Jeff McNeil, but I guess that doesn't make any sense because Jeff McNeil is from California. Anyway, you know what I mean? Uh, Gavin Lux is coming around. Will Smith has had a little drop off, but he's still a terrific offensive backstop plays a really, really good defensive catcher. Um, you know, I, I know some fans are like, Oh yeah, you know, screw the Dodgers. We're not scared of the Dodgers. And you know, this is a, it's not a team that the Mets should take lightly. That's for sure. No, and again, like just like when San Francisco came to New York earlier this year, it was early in the season. We kind of wanted to see how they would do against a team that won 107 games last year. I mean, that's basically what this is. This is a, a good little test. It's obviously not going to be determinative of anything long-term, but it just kind of shows where the Mets are right now. You get four games against great competition, and then after this, they'll have three games against uh, like very good competition as well in San Diego. And, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll just see where, where it's at. What would make you happy, this 10 games? Like, how many games do they have to win for you to be like, that was a successful road trip? They have the one-off day. They've got to go four games against the Dodgers, three games against the Padres, and three games against the Angels, who are really, really down bad. They are. They had a very tough uh... – They've been they they had they started off the year great and then they really just kind of tailed off. But honestly, um, you know, I think you don't want to see five and five. Of course, you know the rational fans should be like, oh, you go out west for ten games, five and five should be acceptable. I think selfishly, I'd like to see six at least six and four. But if the Mets come home at seven and three, oh my god, this place is just going to be, you know, <laughs> insufferably confident um, as a fan base. It's just it's. And not in a bad way, just, you know, we, we're just, I think as a, as a fan base, everyone's just that excited. They come home after, if they could take two or three from the Dodgers, the, you know, I think that the, the, that confidence boost could push the match straight through the West Coast trip. <laughs> yeah, I, I, if they, if they, so they, they have them for four, but if, yeah, if they were to win. Oh, that, I'm sorry, right, yeah. Can I just, I, I'm looking at, at Mookie Betts right now on, on fan drafts. <laughs> These stats are just unbelievable. His, uh, his Woba is, is uh, 432, and his weighted runs created plus is 182. He's already been worth three and a half wins this year. He's like halfway to uh, like a, almost an MVP kind of year already. He's just an unbelievable player. And what did they just hit the 50 game mark? So yeah, he's looking at a possible 10 win season. That, yeah. That's incredible. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> he's got 16 home runs on the air. He's already stole four bases. He's uh, I, I love watching him play. He's a great player. So one of my favorites been... in the league. And, and it's, he, he was up there as like, Oh, like everyone looks at trout as like, Oh, he's the guy. He's the guy. Mookie was right there when the Dodgers won the world series, when he came over from Boston. Yeah. Oh man, his wave was just his crest. He was cresting <laughs> and uh, had a tough year. What was it last year? Yeah, I think so. And you know, uh, boy, he's, he's, he's making every effort to put himself back at the top of that mountain. What a, what a fun player. One of my and favorites. I think Trey Turner has like a 24 game hit streak right now too. So, uh, and, and then you have Freeman who's killed the Mets for years uh, like you said, Chris Taylor, Gavin Lux, good player. Cody Bellinger has been bad, but he's still dangerous. Um, he has good games. Yeah, he hasn't been consistent, but he still has those those Cody Bellinger games. I watch a lot of the Dodgers. Yeah, so this is going to be fun. I'm, I'm just I'm really looking forward to. It. Oh, me too, man. Me too. Um, you're off tonight, right? You're heading out with the uh, with the better half. I am. I am. Yep. Uh, gonna gonna take her out for a nice dinner and we're gonna be out on the water it'll be great fantastic um i am gonna be back for a quick second half our buddy mark gold anyone who attended mets games at shea stadium throughout at pretty much any time in its existence uh has seen gold's mustard gold's horseradish 
um, gold sponsored Mets bobblehead, uh, excuse me, bobbleheads, which they were behind for, for many, many years. Owner and proprietor of Gold's, uh, Mark Gold is going to be joining us. So hang tight and we're going to get some outstanding stories from, uh, from, some, from Mets history. And, uh, and we'll be right back. And Taryn, we'll, we'll see you on Sunday, we hope. Yeah, hope so. All right. Everybody hang tight. We'll be right back. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, everybody, we are back. Tim Ryder, Simply Amazing, with a special guest, our friend Mark Gold. If you guys, as I was saying before the break, if you'd gone to Shea Stadium, if you were in the New York area over the last, oh, I don't know, 50, 60 years, uh, you're familiar, you're familiar, excuse me, with, with Gold's mustard, Gold's horseradish. Um, if you ever got a bobblehead from the Mets leading up to, oh, I don't know, probably just a, about a decade ago. More than likely, it had golds on the bottom of it. It was a sponsor. So, uh, former head of the head of golds is uh, is Mark Golden. He's here to share some of his stories with a, a almost a lifetime of a partnership with the Mets. Mark, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, it's great to be here, Tim. So, awesome. you you got into <laughs> you somehow got your newsletter into the Mets atmosphere when you were just a teenager. Mets maids. Yeah, well, it was it was at N62. It actually started. I started, I got involved with the Mets before the Mets started. It goes back to 1961. The Mets started in 62. And in, in 61, being in Twilight Zone period, the Twilight Zone period is the years 58, 1958 to 1961, where there was no National League team to root for. I was a 14-year-old kid and, and younger. When, when the Dodgers left in 1958, 57 was the last year in Brooklyn. I was left without a team. And when you're that age, to find, I couldn't even follow the Dodgers on the West Coast because of the time difference and newspapers didn't have scores. And I had to go to school in the morning and there was no 24-7 sports. And I had to wait until the afternoon to find out the scores of the Dodger games in those years. And it was, it was a terrible, terrible period for a kid. All people that were fans of the Dodgers or the Giants in those years, had a very rough time. And I, I decided to start a Mets fan club. I, first of all, I hated Walter O'Malley. That was Everyone hated Walter O'Malley. I don't know, like revisionist history has it that he wasn't the only one that was responsible for the Dodgers leaving New York. And, and he, he wanted a ballpark where Barclay Center was, which would have been ideal in the city couldn't work that out. So he left and look what's gone out uh, in Los Angeles, what, how successful that they've been out there. I oh, decided when they announced that the Mets were going to start, that there was going to be an expansion and there was going to be two new teams, the Houston Colts. And I called them, always called them the Colts, <laughs> not the Colt 45s, because that was the competition. Houston was the competition. And they always beat us until <laughs> 1968 when there was a great battle for ninth place. And finally, for the first time, the Mets topped Houston. That was the first time, 1968. I think in 19, of 1968, almost on a par with 69. It was so important to beat out Houston. And that, that was, it was a great uh, prelude to the 1969 season. Going back to 61, I decided I was going to try to start a, a fan club. In those days, Sport Magazine was a great magazine, a monthly, and I had a subscription to it. And they had a section called Fan Club Notes. And if you could, you could send a note into sport saying uh, at the fan club, I'm a New York Mets fan club, gave my home address. And they put my name, they spelled my name wrong, not Mark. They <laughs> called me Mayor, M-A-R-E, which caused the whole ruckus in the family that I'm Mayor Gold, not Mark Gold, although now that sort of thing doesn't matter anymore. But, uh, and, I, and I got a big response. And I started getting letters and people started, wanted to join this Mets fan club. I started a publication, I, pub, a kind of publication. It was a newsletter, a three-page thing. I was 14 years old in 62, in April 62, when the season started. And it was called, I called it Met Maze, the original fan club of the Amazing Mets. <laughs> and 
I had a good time with it for about a year until my mother said, you know, enough with this Mets. It's time to do your homework. And um, it's like, like now my wife puts me in the shoe dungeon whenever I do Mets. My mother didn't put me in, in any dungeon back then, but she said, you better uh, get start doing homework. <laughs> that was the first involvement. Uh, that's when it started. My baseball connection goes back and go back to 1954. I can actually pick the day. I can like the date that baseball hit me. And I'll tell you why. I remember being at a synagogue. It was a Jewish holiday in 1954, around the time of the 1954 World Series, which was the World Series that Willie Mays made the catch. catch, Dick Wirtz shot. It's an interesting thing about Vic Wirtz. He went four for five in that game. And if Mays doesn't catch that, he would have gone five for five. And only two players since then have ever gone five for five. But so that day, I, I have the date. I, I don't have it in my head right now, but I can pinpoint my baseball start to the 1954 World Series when Mays made the catch. That's unbelievable. Now, you actually got a letter from then Mets manager Casey Stengel for your contributions with Met Mays. Well, I made Casey Stengel an honorary member. He didn't have to pay his 45 <laughs> cents dues. Dues were 45 cents for 12-month membership. Although the fan club folded in less than a year, I didn't give a rebate of 12 cents to anybody or whatever the, the uh, to whatever was left of the year. And uh, I would send also, I would send it to Tom Meany. Tom Meany was, is a, a fairly uh, famous baseball writer. He was also the PR man of the Mets in those early years. And I got a letter from Tom Meany said, Casey Stengel thinks your publication is great and thanks you for, for all your efforts. And that was great, getting a, a letter from from Tom Meany referencing Casey Stengel. And anyways, I just uh, went on and on and it la- lasted through, the, the Met Maze lasted through January of 1963. That was a tough year in school, January 63. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, yeah, we, I think we've all been there now. Um, you, I guess you referenced the Mets battling to stay out of last place in 68. And then of course, you know, the miracle in 69. That ascent, from a fan's perspective, and you, you were still just a young fan at the time. How, I guess, what, what, what's your recollection of? Well, of- I, re- I remember when, when you took the memories, I think in terms of 1962 and 1963, those are the years in the, the polar grounds that, that stuck with me. The Mets' first one was April 23rd, 1962. On that day, we were having a family vacation. We were in Florida and my father took me to a minor league game. It was a class D Florida state league game with the Miami Marlins. That was the class D team was playing the Fort Lauderdale team. And on that particular day, I saw an unassisted triple play by the shortstop on the Miami Marlins. And I remembered his name, Ernesto De La Oza. And I saved the, the scorecard for, for now it's disappeared since then. But it, it reached a point where, is that, did he really hit into an unassisted, was it really an unassisted triple play? Did I really witness that? Years have a habit of, of changing memories. And I wasn't sure, maybe it was a double play, maybe it, it wasn't, it was always just a kid, maybe I did it wrong, figured it wrong. But, but I remembered an announcement in the ballpark that the Mets had won their first game ever. That, and I remembered that. So I knew it was April 23rd, 1962. So when the internet opened up and you were able to find anything, I located a newspaper story about Ernesto De La Oza's unassisted triple play. So suddenly my, it was real. It was like dark side of the moon went to the right side of the moon. It was a real thing. I actually witnessed that, which is really interesting when you talk about surrealism and Unreal things. I was at the game when um, Plummer hit the home run, the tying home run uh, last last Sunday. Was it a week ago Sunday? When yeah. he hit that tie, I was at the game with my wife. And we're at the game. And if you remember that game, it was so sudden. It was the first pitch and the Mets were losing and McNeil was on deck. And I said, why don't they put McNeil up to hit to, for Plummer? Why, do, why are they letting him hit? And I'm looking at, we're at the game and we're sitting on the third base side. So I have a pretty good shot of what's happening. And then all of a sudden, wham, he hits the ball. And I I said to myself, I said, is that a a video replay of a different time? And I'm I'm there. I'm watching it. It it was surrealism at the utmost. It it really happened. I really, so that was pretty amazing. And it brought me back to another game that I was at. 
1962, which was Frank Thomas, the original Frank Thomas. It was in August of 1962. I would go to games in those days. I don't know if you did this stuff. You you couldn't do it in in the the modern era. It's, It's a little different. But I got on the subway from Canarsie. And I took the Canarsie line to the D train and took it up to 155th Street, which was the Polo Grounds. And I would go myself. I would just go myself. And it was a doubleheader this day on August 4th, 1962. And a doubleheader was the greatest thing. Baseball forever. Just, just I, I love days. I'd come with my, my, I would keep score and I'd have my own score sheets. And I, my mother sent me with a sandwich and I got a Coke and, and, and the <laughs> First game, Mets won the first game, and I think Roger Craig even got a hit in the first game. I'm not sure. He was a pretty bad hitter. And then the second game, it goes 14 innings. And in that second game, Chris Canazaro, who was a great catcher, couldn't hit, couldn't catch, but had a great arm. He was a great arm, and he threw out Veda Pinson. Veda Pinson was one of the all-stars in those years, one of the great baseball players, in my opinion, ever. He was great. He was on a team with Frank Robinson. He was a great team, Cincinnati. They had won National League pennant in 1961, and it was a team with Robinson and Pinson, and Gordy Coleman was the first baseman on that team. It was a great, great team. And the Mets won 40 games the whole year. They won 5% of their games on that day. And <laughs> game, game two that's, just goes on and on and on. It's the 14th inning. And as a fan, and I know you're a, a crazy baseball fan, now you – Things like that can't happen now because of the, the Manfred's man on second base. <laughs> yeah. Gary, Gary calls him Manfred, Man, Manfred's man, right? Yeah. It, games can't go 14 innings. So you don't get baseball forever. The great thing about baseball, to me, always was that it could go on forever. There was no clock. Suddenly, Manfred, Man, the commissioner puts in a rule Makes putting a clock in the stupid. <laughs> you don't put a clock on a baseball game. And that's, in effect, that's what he did. He put a clock on there. Yeah. Back to the game that I was at, Frank Thomas hits a home run in the 14th inning to win the game. That game, Bob Miller started the game and Bob Miller finished the game. Another thing in the past. How could that be? You know how it was? Because the Mets had two Bob Millers. Ah. <laughs> and Righty Miller, or L. Miller started, and R. G. Miller, Robert Gerald Miller, he completed the game and he got the win. One of his two wins that year came that, that night. And my trip home from the Polo Grounds that night, I was in ecstasy. It was a wonderful, wonderful night. So there were the games like that. I remember Tim Harkness hitting a, a grand slam in 63 in the bottom of the 12th inning. In the top of the inning, Frank Thomas had let Billy Williams, the man on base, hit a, a, a line drive into left field. And Thomas tries to shoestring. It goes past Thomas, goes to the wall. Man on, two-run score, Mets losing by two runs. Bottom of the ninth, bottom of the 12th, Tim Harkness come up, comes up as a pinch hitter. Grand slam. <laughs> there were so many games like that. In 63, I was at the game that Ron Hunt first became a star. It was it, it, it just so many games. I, I wound up interviewing Ron Hunt years later. If you, Ron Hunt was a great second baseman. Sure. And he, he was a Mr. Ryder favorite. Right. That's your father's favorite. Is that what you're saying? Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. Oh, really? And so actually, father- when you brought up Veda Pinson before, I was going to say that, too. That my, my father was a huge, huge Veda Pinson fan. Oh, Pinson and Frank Robinson. With, I, I saw Frank Robinson when he was in Brooklyn against uh, in 1956 as a rookie. I saw him wow. in his field. I saw Frank Robinson, which was amazing. The Ron Hunt story is a- That's a sentence just chock full of baseball history. I saw Frank Robinson at Ebbets Field in his rookie year. That's just amazing. It's a, it's, there's so much great stuff, and, and, I, and I remember so much. Baseball was so important to me. It always was. Mm-hmm. I said, it's not that unique. So many people, it's people my age, a little older, a little younger, that can go back to experience the 60s, of the, the great players of the 60s that came as a result of Jackie Robinson's breaking the color barrier. Well, so you went to see a Pinson and a Robinson and a Mays and et cetera, et cetera. Hank Aaron, Gibson, Fergie Jenkins, and all of these great black players. They just, they just opened the door and you wonder what it would have been like had there been a Jackie Robinson in 1927, 1947. Yeah. Oh, it changes the whole dynamic of the league. It changes the whole landscape of the league. I mean, you know, what if Josh Gibson played in the major leagues instead of the Negro leagues. I mean, you know, he, he might be at the front of that hall of fame class with, uh, with the, with the Ruths and the, and the Cobbs and everyone else. Right. right. Um, just 
you know, in, incredible, incredible stuff. Um, now, eventually, of course, with the with the with the golds, mustard, and horseradish, which I know I mentioned before, I hit record was a staple in the Ryder household. Mister Ryder enjoyed his uh, his weekend Bloody Marys, and gold <laughs> horseradish was the secret ingredient. Um, and of course, going to Shea and, and having golds on your hot dog was just a treat. But uh, that turned into a, a very long-standing partnership for you, right? Well, Gold Source Radish was started by my grandparents in 1932. That's how wow. 90 years. We, we, I got involved in 1970. It's myself, my brother, and my two cousins, the four of us. Pretty, my father was in and uncles were running it until the mid-70s. That's probably when we started getting control over it. I remember the day that we got <laughs> control. And um, my, my, uh, we, we had a great bookkeeper. Mary, Mary was the greatest bookkeeper. And she kept track of our vacation time. <laughs> you know, uh, one week, we got one week. And then after five years, you got two weeks. Ten years, you got maybe three weeks. And she would keep track of it. And my, my father and uncles were away for, I, be, I believe it was when my grandmother died. And, uh, and so no one, they were not there. And we, that's when we really took over because they were not there for a while. They were in mourning. Mm-hmm. And I went over to Mary and I said, can I have the vacation book, please? <laughs> I took the vacation book. Suddenly, we were in charge of vacations for ourselves. We were able to do whatever we want. That's when we, I remember that, that particular moment. But we were, we were, we started, we were in Brooklyn. We were on Coney Island Avenue in Brooklyn where we were, we're it started. It's actually started my grandmother's house, my grandparents' house with a ground horseradish in the kitchen. My grandmother did. My grandfather would take the horseradish and he would have it in a push cart, but he, and he wouldn't pedal it. I once referenced, uh, I telling someone the story, my father heard me talk about my grandfather as a peddler. My father said, your grandfather was not a peddler. He was a businessman. He didn't sell it on the street. He sold it to stores. He went to stores and he said, take two or three bottles. I'll come back next week. If you need two or three more, we'll bring two or three more. And uh, that, that's how we started. There was, there was a story my father told me how he would go with my grandfather on a, on a train to Astoria. And they would have two satchels of horseradish each. And they'd go to the train station, Astoria, and my grandfather would take two satchels and he would go to the stores and sell the, get, sell the, the horseradish, come back, and then they'd take two, the remaining two satchels. I said to my father, Dad, why, did you, why didn't you go with Poppy? Why did you make him? Why did he come back? And, and my father said, by me not going over the turnstile, that was the profit of the day. <laughs> it's true, right? Yeah. So uh, well, that's uh, and then we got involved in the, like I said, in the 70s and, uh, and the Mets, we moved from Brooklyn to I'm, I'm trying to compress this into uh, just a few minutes. We moved from <laughs> Brooklyn into to Hempstead in 1993. Okay. And at that time, we also purchased a mustard company. So we took the mustard company and the horseradish company. And we were also making duck sauce and a bunch of other products. And we combined it into a large factory in Hempstead. And the mustard, it seems that the mustard company that we bought, they only manufactured mustard in gallons. And I went to Shea Stadium and I saw it was there. The mustard was there. It didn't <laughs> say Gold's. It had the name of the company that we purchased, which was Baker's Mustard. Baker's had supplied us with vinegar for many years and they were good friends. And, uh, and I saw that the mustard was there. And uh, shortly after that, I got a phone call from Paul Danforth, who was the a vice president in charge of uh, a C- partnerships, corporate partnerships. And he said, I understand we have your mustard here. Why don't you come and, why don't you come and uh, pay us a visit? I said, what? The Mets want me to come to their office? Oh, my what? And when, our, when our, uh, the receptionist said that Paul Danforth of the Mets is on the phone for you, I, I was astounded. And I, I said, okay, yeah. So, so he made the appointment. I go, I go to Shea. This was in 97. And I go to Shea and sitting in the waiting room and I see all the stuff on the walls. I see the, the large blown up yearbooks and I see all sorts of memorabilia, great stuff. And, and I'm just in awe sitting there and I'm wearing my, you know, put my bar mitzvah suit on and I'm looking really beautiful. <laughs> and, and, uh, and then Paul says, okay, come on into my office. And as I'm, I walk past uh, Jay Horwitz's office and I walk past Doubleday's office and I walk past Wilpon's office and I'm just amazed where I am. Sure. And sit, we sit, I sit down and he said, you know, since we're carrying your mustard, why don't you advertise with us? And I said, 
Okay. Yeah. <laughs> no negotiating. Okay. And I, I sort of caught myself. And, you know, the businessman in me back, uh, it became a businessman sort of and when negotiating something. And actually, he said, we came up with a number. And then I called back uh, later on and I called him when I got back to, the, um, to our place. And I said, can you reduce it by $1,000? And he said, yeah, okay, we'll reduce it. So we were set with the Mets in 97. The first things we did were we did ads in the yearbook and program. Yeah. And the yearbook, 100 pages, 200 pages, can't, you know, who's going to, you know, simply some collectors will find it interesting. And the program, I thought, was better also. The program was a lot less than, it was maybe 25, 30 pages at the beginning, which is manageable. And you had the score sheet, scorecard in the middle of it. Yeah. And we, we were able, they were so great, the Mets. Uh, Jill Grable was the person that I dealt with, and as well as Paul Danforth. And we were able to get our ad. On, on the page that was next to the scorecard. So that's what you wanted. That's the, that's the spot. Yeah. And we were able to get that spot for many years until it, things changed. And uh, so we advertised in the yearbook and the program for a couple of years. And then in uh, 2000, 2001, yeah. before, September, before September 11th on the, in the season, that season, I was asked, uh, why don't you been doing the program in a yearbook? How would you, why don't you do a, a promotional day? Yeah. And what's a promotional day? It's when there's a giveaway for 20,000 fans, 15,000, whatever it is. And it's expensive. Now, all of a sudden, the also jumps up. Now, my partners, they were sort of agreeable to the, um, to the doing the ads in the program in the yearbook, but a promotional day. I had aggravation, a lot of aggravation <laughs> from my partners. My brother was not a sports fan at all. My one cousin, my two cousins were, but one cousin was more of a fan than the other cousin. Anyway, I was able to get the first promotional day. It was 2001, and it was a Little League bat bag. So I envisioned all these Little Leaguers. My son, was uh, Sean, was, uh, was uh, a Little Leaguer that year, in those years. And I, I pictured all these kids with a bat bag that would say gold horseradish on one side and the Mets on the other side. I think it's a beautiful thing. And also we became the exclusive mustard at Shea. And mustard at Shea in those days, it's not like now where you have all these boutique restaurants and you have everything. You can buy anything under the sun and a hot dog is, uh, is not, doesn't have the same hold that it had. <laughs> you weren't limited to a hot dog or a beer and a soda. And that was all you could get for the most part back in those days. Right. And, and a, lo a lot of mustard was moved. And we also, we had the little packets, you know, the packets that you need a screwdriver to open, you know, like, <laughs> open it yep. and it said golds on it. So I figured people are going to be, let's see golds. It wasn't so much for the sales of the mustard, which we had decided to change to add as a retail item at that time. Yes. Yeah. It was only gallons. And now we made it a retail item. So the advertising would help sell the mustard, but it was really the horseradish and the name. That, that I wanted to, to emphasize. And that was the push was going to be on the name Golds. And I thought it was great. Although, like I said, my partners weren't so thrilled about it. So now it came time for the next year. And the Met said, now we're going to do it the next year. And, and uh, I said um, to my, my partner, they, didn't, they didn't, uh, didn't want to do it. They weren't receptive. Yeah, said, forget about it. You didn't want you. So we're going to take, a, take it to a vote, four of us. We never voted on anything. <laughs> the four of us, we did, we did, we did what we wanted. We all had our jobs. The four of us had our jobs. That's what made us so successful for 45 years. We worked together as partners, the four of us, my brother, my cousins, from 1970 to 2015. We worked together and we grew up as babies together. You know, we were playing in, at my grandparents' house under the, under the dining room table while we were having, you know, so, so we, we had this bond, this tight bond. So as, as workers now working, we all had our own responsibilities and we just tear, took care of things. And very rarely did something come up for a vote, very rarely. And I can't, I can't think of another time when it did, <laughs> except for maybe when we moved from Brooklyn to Hempstead, which is another story. It's not going to be able to happen in 15 minutes, that story. <laughs> but we vote, my so I was in favor of doing another promotional day. The Mets had suggested a bobblehead, a bobblehead day. This was in 20, uh, 2002. This is in 2002. And my cousin, my brother said, nope, not doing it. My brother said, my cousin Neil said, I don't care. Okay. So you had one plus and one minus and, a, and, a, and a, I don't care. So it was, it was up to my cousin Howie. And he said, if you can get the Mets to do a Piazza bobblehead. And this is when Piazza was, 
uh, top of the world in sure. 2000, top of the world. Just, well, you know, but you know about Mike Piazza. Future and, Hall of Famer and everybody. Knew. Oh, no, everyone. I had that. Yeah. So I said to the Mets, I said to Paul Danforth, they said, we're not going to do it next year unless we can get Piazza to do a bottle. <laughs> because I, we, the vote was already in. I the vote. Howie gave me the vote. Is that my brother Steve was against it because of Neil and Care. So it was, it was two, one and one, 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 one tie. So the vote was in and Danforth said, let me see if we can work it out. And I remember I was at, a, at the key food buying office when I got a, a phone call from, from, you know, I don't remember exactly how it happened. I remember it was a key food and the voicemail, it was a voicemail from Paul Danforth who was mimicking Mike Piazza. And he said, this is Mike Piazza and, I, and I'm, I'm going to do the bobblehead for, for golds. And, and of course it wasn't Paul. And I say, I, it wasn't the mic, it was Paul saying it. Yeah. And I saved that voicemail for many, many, and it's not around anymore. Some things just aren't around. So we were in, and we did it for 14 consecutive years of bobblehead. We hold a record for bobbleheads. And of course, that led to the curse of the bobblehead and got a lot of great publicity out of it. And <laughs> the idea with the bobbleheads, it wasn't, it wasn't as big as it is, nothing like it is now. Yeah. The, the bobbleheads really started to be prominent. The Giants did a Willie Mays bobblehead back in, in the 90s. And uh, the Mets did a Mookie Wilson and and a Tom Seaver bobblehead, but it wasn't an annual thing. It wasn't a big, big, big thing. It started with Piazza. We, we, we start with the Piazza bobblehead, and then we had John Franco the next year, and then Kaz Mitsui, Pedro. And then we got this great press, Ken Belson, writer on the Times. He put together a story about the curse of the bobblehead. <laughs> you know about the curse of the bobblehead? Sure. Oh, yeah. Well, well Piazza never became, after 2001, he was never the same. He was injured and he has, his, the time went by. There's yeah. another Piazza story when he came back with San Diego and I was at the game and he had a home run. It was so great when he came back. We were so happy for him. He had a home run. Great moment. Yeah. And loved him. But then when he came up for the second time, yeah, that love was lost. Now it's, now it's a matter of winning and losing. You, you, you and got then he hit another home run, right? Right after the second right, I think the second one we we also gave it the, after the second home run. Then it was it was a matter of what was winning and losing. John Franco, John Franco was the bobblehead in 03. I liked about Franco was that we were able to get with the C on his on his un, on his uniform on yeah. the bobblehead, and. Franco was is not the same. He's come back from an injury, and we weren't even sure if he was going to be able to play at the, the scheduled date for his. So it so then and then 04 was Kazmitsui. And Kazmitsui never really became much. I thought he was going to be another Ichiro. Though he looked great at the plate. He swung the bat like uh, Ichiro did, but he just it, actually, if you remember, he was they put him at shortstop and Put Reyes, who was Reyes to second. <laughs> Reyes to second is the only thing. Out. So Mitsui and then Pedro Martinez. When Pedro became the bobble, the Mets let us select the bobbleheads, and I would, I would, I would discuss it with Sean, and we would pick, we would decide who was going to be. And w- when they got Pedro, we told we told uh, uh, Paul that we wanted, could we do Pedro? And he said, Yeah, you could do it. But Pedro, why? How is he cursed? <laughs> He fell in the dugout during the season. <laughs> Who falls down in the dugout? Why oh, did he the fall sprinklers down? went on when he's on the mound. Uh, he, uh, and he wasn't, his toe. he wasn't. The Wilpons had a little something to do with that, but he wasn't able to play in the 06, uh, 06 uh, playoffs. Season, That's yeah. because he was injured from that. Why was he injured? Because he was cursed. David David <laughs> Wright is. Uh, he was the next. Uh, I have a David Wright here. Oh, yeah. that's excellent. Yeah, this is this is this is a. Uh, yeah, with the gold in the front. That's the one. And, and, that, and that's the thing that we just like to get that. And all the buyers, I would give this to all of our buyers of the supermarket chains and, and uh, all of our yeah. customers. And they'd love it. They'd put it behind the desk. And it was like a great thing. And they were collecting all of our bobbleheads. Yeah. It became synonymous in a way. And now, having such a rich history with the Mets, seeing your family's company name synonymous with an era of the Mets that must have incited some, um, some, some really strong feelings. It was great. It was, you know, I had a great time with it and uh, it was, it's always tough separating business with, with a uh, fan. Sure. I always, I always, a businessman, a fan, just like that story I told oh, you. You're preaching the choir there. And uh, yeah, it's, it's <laughs> such a, it's such a tough thing. And the, the perfect example of it was we did a doc Gooden bobblehead in 2013 
And that particular, we also got the opportunity to pick who was going to throw out the first pitch the day of the promotion. And they gave us a suite. The Mets would give us a suite that day, a suite. We'd bring the customers in there and the family being the key account, the buyers, the key accounts. It's all about the perception. It even seemed we were bigger than we were because here we were. a promotional day with the Mets. It's, it's a, it was a very big, people think it's bigger than what it is. And it was, it was so important to me to do that. The, on, so this opportunity for the first pitch, we had a kid from Staten Island who it was, it was around the time of Hurricane Sandy, who had, there was a tragedy in his family. And the kid that threw out the first pitch, we had selected this kid throughout the first pitch of the game. And Doc knew this story. And Doc sat with the kid in the dugout for must have been 20 minutes before the game talking to this kid. He was so wonderful. Dwight Gooden was wonderful. And I've spoken to Doc a few times. He's just a wonderful person. Fortunately, he had some, just the the problems that he had is well known, but he's just a great, great person. So Doc, Doc, I talked to the kid and now uh, the game starts (laughs) and, uh, and I'm sitting in the, up in the, up in the suite with the Met representatives, Catherine Marquette. That was the girl that was, she was the young lady that was uh, the contact and setting everything up. And part of the promotion was they give us a, a sign in the cam- next to the camera well by the dugouts that says gold horseradish, just a day of the game. And so I'm, I'm up there and I'm talking to Catherine and I, I look, I say, Catherine, I don't see the sign there. <laughs> and this is an expensive proposition, this promotional day. And it's a one day thing. And the sign's not there. That's like a deal breaker, right? It's it's fine and contract and all sorts of legal stuff is done for these things. I said to Catherine, where's the sign? So she starts texting away and get it, get the sign. And then I said to her, if you can get Dwight Gooden to come into the suite, all is forgiven. (laughs) That's the the line that I was talking about. if If you're a fan, wonderful businessman, yeah, you should give me, I should get a rebate of some sort on that because I, I said, Doc, get, so she starts texting more and she says, Doc will be up here in 10 minutes. Oh, that's cool. And Dwight Gooden walks in with an entourage because all the security people and walk and he stays there. It must have been 40 minutes, half hour, 40 minutes, signing everything, taking pictures with whomever okay. wants a picture. And it was just wonderful, wonderful thing. That's that, that uh, fine line and that you, that you talk about and that sure. I've had experiences with that many times through the years involving the Mets. And we also sponsored other teams. We sponsored minor league teams. We sponsored the Red Sox, believe it or not. Wow. We actually had two promotional days for Pedro, once with the Mets. And then when he made the, the uh, made Cooperstown, he was, it, it, that year the Red Sox had a, a mini plaque and we sponsored the day for the, that mini plaque. So it was a mini plaque oh, with Pedro. Isn't Martin. that cool? So it's also that we, were, we did the Rays, uh, and uh, the minor league teams in New York Metro, we did the Staten Island Yankees, Brooklyn Cyclones, and um, Long Island Ducks. I guess sure. uh, you know Long Island. Have you ever been out there? That's oh, yeah. A, that was at a great ballpark also. Wonderful ballpark and such a fun team, a fun atmosphere. I brought the kids out there when they were younger. And, and yeah, uh, just great, great time. Um, excellent organization out there. So it's, it is. And then now that the Atlantic League, Staten Island has a team in the Atlantic League. Yeah. Which is it's terrible when they the New York Penn League. <laughs> God, oh, 125 years, yeah. New York Penn League, and baseball decides to contract and gone. Yeah. Just, just by an arbitrary decision to. And they used to actually get box scores in our local, in the Newsday and in the papers, and you would have your New York Penn League standings, and yeah, thing of the past, I guess. Yeah. It's like so many things. Uh, along with box scores in the paper. <laughs> now, the, 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 now I have to go to an eye doctor next week. <laughs> Can you imagine not being able to read a box score? Can you imagine? Oh, then they used to have the play-by-play in the in the paper. Oh, right, such, right, right. It was great. It was good times. I mean, I missed the, the the era that you were referring to, those 60s, that golden era. But boy, those the late 80s, early 90s were, were, were certainly a nice consolation. Well, 92. 92 was a tough year. <laughs> no, well, not, not as a Mets fan, just as a baseball fan in general. I baseball. In 92. Plenty of good stuff. <laughs> in 92, I don't know if you remember that year. That was the oh, year that, that Kevin, they, had, they were, Greg Jeffries was a great hitter. He had probably, whatever it was, he was his ego, whatever. But he's a great hitter. Couldn't sure. deny that. And Hojo was still on that team. And Daryl was still on that team. Magadan was, uh, was a, another doubles hitter. Doubles. They had great, great hitters on that team. David Cruz was on that team. And uh, Kevin Elster got hurt. 
And so Davey got fired that year. I'm, I'm not sure it was before this, before the injury or after the, I don't know. He got fired that year. Buddy took over, but Harrelson took over okay. managing. This was in 90, I'm confusing 92 and 90. Was it 90? Uh, possibly 90 because then Cubbage. Thinking of 90. I'm thinking of 90. I think it's Cubbage and then 92 is Torborg. Well, Harrelson took over. Uh, anyway, the, uh, I'm, I'm not sure of that stuff. A lot of the stuff gets, <laughs> gets jumbled up. In that particular year, in, instead of replacing, getting an, another shortstop, they put Hojo from third, they moved him to short. And mm-hmm. Greg Jeffries, they took him from second, moved him to third, and they got Tommy Hur from the Cardinals. Right. And uh, it disrupted that whole team. This is in 92. Was 90, the team I'm talking about is in 92. And right. Willie Randolph eventually made his way here. Uh, Hubie Brooks came back. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah, they really had to kind of retool. So that was, it was, so that, that was, and, that, and McReynolds didn't want to, what did what Lenny Dykstra, I think, said that in the great 30 for 30, you know, the, the ESPN oh, yeah. thing. Oh, is that wonderful? What a wonderful oh, show yeah. that was. But oh, Dykstra, Nick, hey, Nick Davis, producer and director of, the, of that, was on, was on our show not too oh, long. Oh, really? Really? Yeah. Oh, that, that was wonderful. I could watch it over and over again. But Mark, I really, I cannot thank you enough for, for coming on to the show and, and telling something. I'm sure you probably got hours left of these stories. And I, mean, I think we have to have you back to kind of delve into Sure, them. sure. Excellent. A lot of good stuff. This is pleasure. Um, I loved it. Loved it. Oh, good. I'm glad. And, and again, it's such a nice little connection between seeing the gold's name for so long and then being able to have this conversation and the Mets being in the middle at some. It's really, it's special. I hope you did have a good time. I did.